I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read verses 50 through 58. I think we began this study back in July of last year, so we've almost made a complete year on this one uh, letter to the Corinthian Christians. We're at one of the most exciting passages in all of Scripture, one you hear often read at a cemetery, as a matter of fact, place of committal because it refers, it, it talks about the final victory. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, on the, with regard to millennial faith, there are two camps, and believers are on one side or the other. They're in one of the two camps. Now, I know this is very simplistic, but so am I. And, and this is a simplistic illustration of the two basic camps of millennial faith and believers of millennial faith. There are those who believe that in the millennial reign of Jesus, that he will come back to earth and establish a thousand years of earthly reign, and he will have an earthly kingdom over which he will preside and will reign. The millennial faith of that group, premillennial faith is that at the end of the age, Jesus will return and establish an, a, a thousand years earthly kingdom and reign. Then there are the others who are in the amillennial camp. Ah, meaning against or non-millennium. These people believe that, that the Terms that refer to the millennium in the Bible are symbolical, referring to the fulfillment of time, the completion of God's plan for the ages. And at the end of that time, whenever it is, whenever the time comes, the end of the age, Jesus will return and will divide the sheep from the goats, the lost from the saved, and the saved will go up into heaven forever, and the lost will be cast into the lake forever. Now, those who are in the millennial camp, those who believe in the earthly established kingdom, believe 
in the rapture of the church. Some of them do. What in that group, they are those we might call the rapturist. And those who believe in the rapture believe this, that at the time that Jesus returns, he will come close to the earth and catch the Christians up out of the earth. And those who are lost will be left on earth to go through what is called the great tribulation period. And in the rapture, you've seen pictures of this and movies and, and religious uh, films. They sh one was shown up in the youth department one time a few months back or a year or two back. Uh, you know, here's a guy, he's driving down the street and all of a sudden the person in the next car, you know, just disappears and is gone. And, and um, he goes home and his family is gone. He, and all of a sudden it dawns on him that the rapture has occurred. He, he's been left on earth. The rapturists believe that at the end of the age, Jesus comes and catches the church up out of the earth and, and those who are left will go through the tribulation. The amillennialists, of course, believe that when Jesus returns, it's the all over then. There's no earthly kingdom, no rapture as such, that he just calls a halt. There is no more time. Time is no more. And that the lost are in, in, in hell and the saved are in heaven. Now regardless, and our purpose tonight is not to try to talk about the rapture or the amillennial belief or faith because relevant to both of these camps is this passage. Whether you believe in the rapture of the church or if you have an amillennial persuasion believing that at the end of the age it's all gonna be over, whether you believe in that or not, what this passage deals with is the question, what's going to happen to those who are alive when Jesus returns? So that the question would be, what's, it going, to, what's going to happen to those who are alive at the rapture? Or what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to those, to, to, when he comes to call a halt to history and, and catch up the saved into heaven? That's the, this, this the question that seeks an answer in our text. Now, Paul does not say that a body does not inherit the kingdom of God. He does not say that we'll not have a body in heaven. We've already established the fact that Jesus had a body after his resurrection and was recognized as before and that his body will be the pattern for our body. He doesn't say that we won't have a body in heaven. He says that we won't have a body as we have on earth in heaven. It will not be a flesh and blood body. It will be changed. It will, it will take on new substance. Now in verse 51, he says, this is a mystery. I'm going to tell you this mystery. The word in the Greek is musturion. And it doesn't mean a puzzle that needs to be filled out. It's not like a riddle. He's not talking about one of these whodunit novels that you try to figure out who, who committed the crime. It's, that's not what this musturion means. It's a word that means something that is not known to the uninitiated. It is something that is known by assistance or by revelation. And a better word is a word secret. It is something that is unknown, a secret that's unknown to the, un, to the uninitiated. 
Now, there are certain sororities or fraternities or groups that have secrets that are unknown to those who have not been initiated into that group. Now, Christ has a fraternity, and this fraternity is his family, the family of believers, and there is something we have information, we have privy to knowledge or information that is unknown to those who are outside the family, outside the fraternity of God. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you a mystery that not even the prophets know or knew. You see, the prophets knew about the resurrection from the dead. The Old Testament knew about the resurrection from the dead, but it had no theology concerning a second advent of the Messiah. It did not have knowledge that one day the Lord would return to earth in an eschatological sense, in an end time sense, calling an end to everything. Even the prophets did not have revelation of that knowledge. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to give you a mystery. I'm going to tell you something that, that, that only those who are a part of the family of God can understand and know. And, and, and this is it. He said, we, not all, we shall not all sleep. Now that term is, is never applicable to the unsaved. It's never applied to the unsaved. You'll find nowhere in the scripture that, 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 is, that the unsaved are referred to as asleep. It is a term that is applied only to believers. Now we understand, of course, that he's not talking about soul sleep. He's talking about the body that sleeps, the body that rests in the grave, we shall not all sleep in the sense not everybody's going to be dead when Jesus returns. And, and in this mysterion, in this miracle, he describes what's going to happen when Jesus returns, and it could be tonight. Now, just suppose that this, this night is the end. This is the end. Tonight is the last. What's going to happen when Jesus returns, in, and it could be tonight, and he, he describes it in astounding ways. He says that we're going, these bodies will be changed in a moment. Now the Greek word there is the word atomos, and we get our word atom from that word. It means something that can't be divided in two. It is in an atom of time, it'll be over. In, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a moment, in an atomos, in, in a time that cannot be divided, it's, it'll be over and our bodies will be changed. Now, how do you picture that, that kind of thing? Well, if you've ever watched a, a race on television, maybe a horse race, I know you've never been, to one, but you may have seen one on television, or you've seen some kind of uh, you know, track meet and, and a sprint, and you've seen a, what is called a photo finish. You've seen that, haven't you? I mean, the end, the two people that cross the finish line are so close together they couldn't even determine who won. And so he got this photo finish, and with the, with the means of still stop photography, you're able to detect that one person is there just a little bit ahead of the other, but, but the times are so close together, they give both the same times, the same time. 
Now, it's always a mystery to me, a puzzle to me, how a person could have the same time as, a, as another person and yet one person win the race, you know. If they had the same time, it looked like it'd be a, you know, an absolute tie, but the difference is so small that they gave both runners the same time. That's exactly the idea that's involved in this. When Jesus returns in the atomos, in the atom of time, the end is over and our bodies are changed and we're in the presence of the Lord. And then he goes on to illustrate it further. He says, in the twinkling of an eye, how many times has your eye blinked since you've been sitting here? Well, you don't count them, do you? Now, it gets pretty boring in here if you count the bricks or the times your eye blinks. Now, I, you know, I have been some places where I had to find something, you know, to count just to, you know, keep from, you know, going absolutely, totally to sleep. Now, it's pretty boring if you've counted the times your eye has, it just happens and you're not even cognizant of it. You're not even aware of it. It's just like that. Ah, that's what he's talking about. At the last trump, he said, and when he, when he said that, immediately these, these people in Corinth remembered what the trumpet involved. They remembered that when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, there were two million of them. Some historians say as many as two million folks were in that great exodus that went out of Egypt. Now can you imagine the demographics of trying to keep up with two million folks? I took a trip to the Holy Land back in January and I was responsible for 27 folks. I'm telling you what, I need to pull my hair out trying to keep up with those. Not really, but you know, that's, not, that's no easy matter, you know, trying to keep up with a group. You, you ask Kevin or David, some of these guys that have been on youth trips, he was telling about their little expedition to Six Flags yesterday when that storm came through Six Flags, trying to keep up with all his group over there. I mean, can you imagine? what would be involved in trying to get, kind of keep a tab of two million folks? I mean, you've got to have some fantastic communication, wouldn't you? Now, how do they communicate to two million people wandering out in the wilderness? Well, there was a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to, to remind the people that God was with them and as that cloud would move along, they'd follow the direction of the cloud in the daytime and the fire at night. Now this is how they communicated. This was the line of communication by, by trumpets. And the Old Testament says there were seven trumpets that they blew. One was a signal of one thing and the second was another and, and the third, but the seventh trumpet was the last trumpet and the seventh means it's time to get up and move. Now we're not told what the tr first trumpet symbolized or called them to, well, you can just use your imagination. Maybe it says, okay, folk, okay, boys, get ready for the news. It's kind of like, uh, now hear this, you know. The second trumpet may have been, okay, it's, this, is the, this is the cue, this is the sound for the leaders to get together for a little conclave. And the second trumpet and the third trumpet, well, when they got to the seventh, it means it's time, boys, to move. Now, now watch this. I believe that the moment Jesus ascended into heaven, the first trumpet sounded. Because Paul talks about the fact and every one of the New Testament writers talk as if they believed that the second coming was immediate. 
The first trumpet sounded when Jesus went to heaven. That is, get ready, folks, for the end. 2,000 years ago, the first trumpet sounded. Now, I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not one that likes to dig around in these books and try to find the, you know, evidence of, of uh, all these things coming together that marks the end of the age. But I have a strong feeling that we have heard the sound of the sixth trumpet. I believe the developments in the Middle East and what is churning over there like a boiling cauldron is evidence that we're hearing the sound of the sixth trumpet and the next trumpet we hear will be the last trumpet. Bailey Smith said that he went to preach a revival for a guy in Tennessee. He said, the guy picked him up at the airport. He said, Bailey, I've got this, I got an idea, the, 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 the title for a great sermon. He said, what is it? He said, Gabriel is licking his lips. <laughs> Pretty good. Gabriel is licking, you know what he meant? He meant, well, he's getting ready to blow the last trumpet. Now, when the last trumpet sounds, when the seventh sounds, it's time to pick up and move on. It's all over. Now, look at verse 53. He said, for this perishable must it's a divine imperative, put on the imperishable, and the mortal, must, this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, this mortal has, shall have put on immortality, then shall come about the saying that is written, Isaiah 25, 8, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, Isaiah, when he wrote that, wasn't aware of all that is involved, what we're talking about here. He was a prophet who did not have privy to the mysterion. And when he was writing that, he was really thinking or, or talking about the Assyrians, that one day the Assyrians would be swallowed up in victory forever, he says in Isaiah 25, 8. But Paul picks up on that and says, I'm going to take that and show you the secret, the mystery. One of these days in the atomos of time, in that split second moment, death will be swallowed up in victory forever. Now, I have seen death strutting around on this earth as a victor. Has no respect for seasons. I've preached funerals on Christmas Eve and the day after Christmas. And I've stood there in those services. I've done that here. And I have thought to myself, what is death doing here? I've preached funerals on Thanksgiving Day, true story. I've preached funerals on Easter Sunday. I've preached funerals on New Year's Eve and the day after New Year's. And I have thought as I stood there, what is death doing here? I've seen death strutting around, has no respect for seasons. Has no respect for persons. 20 minutes before I went into the baptistry tonight, the telephone rang and a, boy, a young man called me to say, I just wanted you to know, and he named this couple who've had a little baby. The baby was prematurely born about three months ago, has been in the, in, the, in the children's hospital in Oklahoma City ever since. He said, I just want you to know that, that and told the, named the couple, their baby just died. Death is no respect of persons. It comes to the old and the young, comes to the rich and the poor. You know what Paul says? He said, in that atomos of time, 
Death will be removed from, from reality. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now that's shouting ground. It means that the final overthrow of the king of terror is coming. It means that death will no longer strut this earth in victory. Death will be swallowed up in the black hole of his victory. And then he quotes or paraphrases Hosea. And he says that the sting of death is sin. Now what does that mean? It means that that Sin causes death. Pictures a serpent, venomous serpent, bringing death. Now what did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? What did he say? He said, the day you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die. The day you eat it. Now, he did not say, Adam, if you eat the fruit of this tree, one of these days you're going to die. He said, the day you eat this tree, you shall surely die. Now, I know some theologians have, have tried to kind of uh, ease the pain of that and say that he's talking about spiritual death there, and that is true. But the day a man sins, he forfeits his right to life. Now, justice is often delayed because you and I, because we're alive today is a, is a proof of the fact that God has delayed his justice because you and I are under the sentence of death for we have sinned and the moment we sinned, we started to die. We died. We are, we're under the sentence of death. And the carrying out of that sentence has just been delayed by the, by the mercy of God. We, we, we forfeited our right to the gift of life the moment we sin. I want you to see that. The sting of sin is death. And the power of sin is the law. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to open. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. I alluded to this passage of Scripture this morning. I just want you to see it and, and take a look at it. It's Romans 7, 7. It's the next book back. Would you turn to that? What shall we say then? I'll hurry. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He said, well, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now watch, look at verse eight. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, what Paul is saying is this, that, there, that, that the law gave the power to sin. That is, the law, the prohibition prompted sin. You ever notice that that happens all the time? We want to do what we can't do. You ever seen this sign that says, do not touch wet paint? What do you do? He you puts your finger right on that where it says, do not touch. A few years ago, flagship hotel in Corpus Christi, Texas was erected and they built the first floor of that was 40 feet above the, 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 the level of the sea. It goes down, out, juts out toward the, the sea, I'm told. And they, the first floor of that is a restaurant. They, 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 they enclosed that restaurant in plate glass so that people could dine and enjoy the scenery there. And, and 
they were always having to put in these new plate glass windows because folks up in the, in the rooms on the balconies of the, of the floors above them were fishing you know, off of that. And they were casting out into the gulf and, and, and as they're bringing in these lead weights of their fishing line would fall against those plate glass windows and break them. And they just always having to replace them. And a guy came up with the solution. He said, let's take down all the signs that say, do not fish from the balcony. No fishing from the balcony. Let's take down those signs. And he said, when they took down the signs, no fishing from the balcony, they quit fishing. <laughs> the sign that said no fishing was the, the very, the prohibition that prompted the folks to do it. Now, is that human nature or not? It sure is. Now, what Paul is saying is this. It's, it's like this now. It's together the fulfillment of Scripture, and not everybody has the privilege of ever, ever experiencing the fulfillment of Scripture in this life, except those who are saved. Now, when you're saved, you experience the fulfillment of Scripture at the point of your salvation. But some of you have never seen the fulfillment of Scripture. You've never seen a promise of God brought to fruition or an answered prayer. And if you're alive when Jesus returns, you will experience for yourself the fulfillment of Scripture. You'll see this thing happen. It'll be great. Now, what should be our response? What should be our response knowing this? Well, he said... Be steadfast, it means to sit down. I mean, dig in. I was coming through the, I was telling somebody the other day about this. I was coming through the, uh, that west, western Oklahoma one night late. I'd been up in revivals when I was up in Shattuck. I was coming home, man, I was letting a hammer down, coming in. And, and I was coming through that uh, uh, ranch country and I saw out of the corner of my eye this coyote headed across the road, and I knew we were going to tie right there in the middle of that. And, and, and I was going full bore, and so was he. And it, it's that, you've seen these cartoons? It was hilarious. As he, hit the, as he hit the road, the highway, he saw he was going to hit me, or I was going to hit him. He just sat down. I mean, you see, that he just kind of scooted on his tail end. I mean, just, boom, bang, hit the side of my car. Now, what Paul is saying, something like that. He said, sit down and dig in. Be steadfast. He said, be unmovable. That is, never be shaken. You should never be shaken. You, knowing that the ultimate victory is, is within a, an atom of time, you should never be shaken. And then he said, always abounding. That is, excelling in the work of the Lord. Now, if there's anybody, it ought to be excelling in the work of the Lord. It's those people who have been clued in on the mysterion that within an atom of time, the victory is ours. Now, if he's coming back like, and this going to happen, shouldn't we just kind of, uh, I mean, why go on with the struggle? Why, why go on with the business? Shouldn't we just kind of close up our businesses and, you know, go fishing? You know, I mean, go find some mountain, look for him. Well, William Miller thought so, the founder of Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1840. And he said, he declared that sometime between March the 21st, 1842, 
and March the 21st, 1843, the Lord is going to return. And so they quit their jobs and they sold their houses and etc. And the 22nd and the 23rd came and the Lord didn't return. And so they went back to recalculate. They said, oh, we made a miscalculation. It's going to be on the 22nd of October, 1844. 200 folks in Philadelphia closed their businesses and left their jobs. One man put a sign on his business. It said, this shop is closed for the king of kings to appear. Get ready to crown him, Lord of, Lord, Lord of all. And the 22nd came of October, 1844, and the 23rd, and the 24th. And they went home disillusioned. Five years later, William Miller died. You know what they put on his tomb? This is so ironical. They put on his tomb, at the appointed time, the end shall be. That's right. At the appointed time, the end shall be. You know who has appointed that time? The Father. And Jesus said, not even the Son knows the hour. So what is my responsibility? My responsibility is to abound, that is to excel in the work of the Lord. What does that mean? It means doing God's will for your life. That's what it means. If God's will is for you to be a student at Southeastern, you need to be the very best. You need to abound in that because the Lord may come back. If God's will is for you to be a housewife, a mother, then you need to excel in that. You remember that lady that came up to Dwight L. Moody? She's one of these kind of a, a rash, volatile type people. She said, well, I believe the Lord has called me to the ministry. He said, you do? Well, that's great. How many kids you got? She said, seven. He said, you're right. There's your pulpit. If, God is, if God's will is for you to be a mother, excel in it. The Lord may return in an atom of time. If God has placed you in, in, in a teaching position as a, as a workman, as a businessman, then what you and I are to do is to abound in that will of God where we are at this point in time. As though, now you've heard this old statement over and over again, it could never be more relevant than this, as though he may return tonight. And my favorite line or verse is from that old Negro spiritual. It's, it, the Negro just expresses what Paul is saying when he said, there's a king and a captain high who will be coming by and by and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. And you'll hear his legions charging in the thunder of the sky and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. When he comes, when he comes, all the dead will rise and answer to his drums. When the stars of his encampment fire the firmament on high, the heavens will be rolled asunder when he comes. There's a man that men defied who was tortured till he died, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. He was hated and rejected. He was scourged and crucified, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. When he comes, when he comes, He'll be ringed with saints and angels when he comes and they'll be shouting out Hosanna to the man that men denied 
and I'll kneel among my cotton when he comes. And what he's saying, I'm going to excel in God's will for me right here and I will be excelling when he comes. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the encouragement, the comfort that this word brings and the challenge that it traces before us. And I pray, Father, that we'll be aware of the imminence of your glorious and triumphant, victorious advent. Help us to put away childish things. Help us to put off the old man and the new, the old garment, put on the new. To be diligent, excelling, abounding in your will for us today. So we'll not be ashamed when the Lord returns. Even so, come Lord Jesus is our prayer in his name. Now if you look this way, I want to make an appeal, an invitation to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He came the first time, meek and lowly, bearing a cross on his back. He came with blood in his hands, with the thorns on his brow. He came with spittle on his face. He came to die for you and me. He was raised from the, day, from the dead, from the grave, ascended into heaven to be your Savior and Lord. Would you trust him? Would you give your life to him? Would you repent of sin and say, I want to give my heart and life to this Savior of, of the world? Would you do that? Have you done it? My invitation tonight is for those of us who have not abounded in the work of the Lord, who have not been faithful to that place where God has placed us. Maybe a need for rededication, a new commitment to the, to the task, rededication of life, church membership, God leading you to place your life in the church. Would you do it while we stand? If God leads you, if God just kind of whispered in your ear and said, hey, I want you to do it, would you do it? While we stand, I invite you to come.